welcome to the Cyber Ranch podcast, recorded under the big blue skies of Texas, where one CISO explores the cybersecurity landscape with the help of friends and experts. Here's your host, Alan Alford. Howdy, y'all, and welcome to the Cyber Ranch podcast. With us today is my good friend, Will Lynn. He's a venture capitalist with ForgePoint Capital, and he focuses exclusively in the information security space. Since our industry seems to be so dependent upon startups in order to succeed, I thought we could all stand to learn a little more about the startup world, the VC world, and how those two intersect. Will, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thank you. Thank you, Alan. It's a pleasure. First, a brief word about our sponsor. Time is the enemy of cybersecurity. Time spent identifying devices that are missing endpoint agents with known vulnerabilities that are unmanaged, that need updates. Time spent identifying cloud instances that aren't being scanned, that are misconfigured. Time spent gathering asset data. Time is the enemy of cybersecurity, until Axonius. By connecting to existing data sources, customers get a comprehensive asset inventory, understand security gaps, and automatically validate and enforce security policies. Thank you, Axonius, for sponsoring this show. All right, so I guess the first question for you is, why is it that so many of us in security rely on startups? Like, what's the ecosystem? Why do we have such a heavily startup-oriented play in our tech stack? Yeah, I mean, I have a couple of hypotheses. And uh, just for a little bit of context, cybersecurity VC, that's all I do. But not only that, that's all my entire firm does as well. So 12 people dedicated towards security means I can't tell you exactly why startups in other categories are what they are, but I can tell you why I think startups in security are what they are. And I think it really boils down to how quickly the cybersecurity role or function is evolving. On one hand, CISOs are asked to change every decade essentially what they're doing as a job. And that's constantly evolving in different rates per different companies. And so as a result, lots and lots of confusion, lots and lots of on what the CISO should be doing. And so as a result, some CISOs are very DevSecOps centric. Some CISOs are very compliance centric. Some CISOs are very IT centric. Some CISOs are very cloud centric. It's just so much variety. And each of those folks need something different. And so there isn't going to be one vendor, especially one incumbent, that can help those CISOs. And then the second hypothesis is also on the attack vector side. You know, as soon as something gets figured out, the (laughs) people on the other side creating the havoc have found a new and unique way to create more havoc. And that's their responsibility in this ecosystem, right? I mean, that's the only way that they can continue to profit from the havoc that they're creating. And that means that us as CISOs are on the practitioner side, as on the defender side, have to always stay in very close step with what is going on in terms of threats out there. Yeah, I can relate to that one for sure. The incumbent tech stack that worked great yesterday suddenly is useless today, and I'm scrambling around trying to find a new solution. That piece I can relate to. So before we dive into some of the more detailed questions about this whole scene, the, the, the VC and startup scene, why don't you tell us a little bit more about what you actually do in your day job and a little bit about who you are in your background? So in terms of my day job, I feel very, very fortunate because I get to be in the flow of innovation and I get to try to find it, think about it and support it in the form of innovation, in the form of startups, in the form of people um, and in form of practitioner friends like you, Alan. And so what that means is I am constantly, you know, with my ears to the ground, constantly looking for opportunities to help others. And whether it's I'm helping a CEO slash vendor, 
whether I'm helping a practitioner, this role gives me this opportunity to help others. And, and this role is venture capital. I don't know if every other <laughs> VC in the world views it from this lens or from this perspective. You know, I think when a lot of us think of VCs, we think of the innovation that we're attached to and the disruption that is attached to startups as well. And that's certainly a really great way of thinking about the power of startups and power of venture capital. But for me, I think about it a lot in terms of how I can leverage this role to help others. And then in terms of a little bit about me, just super, super quickly is, you know, I've been an entrepreneur for essentially my whole life. And very quickly being an entrepreneur in technology, you sort of see <laughs> what's going on and sort of the other side of the internet, the darker side. And as a result, that really inspired me to think and spend a lot of time focusing on security for a large chunk of my life. That's fantastic. So I'm going to ask, you know, from the practitioner perspective, we all see and hear the news, such and such company just got their angel investment and, and their brand spanking new, or somebody just got their series A or series B or whatever it might be. And we all have a pretty good understanding of what that means. You know, angel, angel money means some outsiders have deemed you to be worthy enough that we're going to throw some money your way. And then obviously venture capital as the series go, the, the company's getting larger and larger. But what to you, what's that critical split between that first round of angel funding and that first series A VC investment? Kind of what's the big difference that, that a practitioner would want to know a company he's looking at has made their angel funding versus has made their series A funding? What, what are the distinctions there and how would that affect a practitioner? So maybe what I can do is I can go super high level and then drill down into, in the end, sort of numbers. Okay. And show how this whole progression, how the, all this craziness works. So the super high level way of thinking about all of this is that companies and startups go through sort of very natural progressions in terms of maturity. And there's so many different frameworks out there, product market fit, products to go to market fit. So many frameworks about where the team is, how far it's evolved, crossing the chasm, just there's a lot. But what it all really boils down to is where in this company's life cycle is it? And after you've seen enough companies and if you experience enough companies, you sort of have a really good sense, ah, okay, this company is there. You know, these are the problems that you're facing now. Okay, now you're facing these set of problems. Okay, now you're facing these set of problems and th this set of greatness as well. And so us as VCs, what naturally happens is we usually prioritize or focus on specific maturity levels of a company. And then we build the skills to help those types of companies, to identify those types of companies, and then to be able to, be able to choose those types of companies. And so that's why you see some investors generally only doing angel and seed, some investors generally only doing early stage, and some investors generally only doing late stage, because the company looks very different in each of those categories. And you also have to invest very differently, support them very differently, all that kind of stuff. So macro perspective. Now the more tactical, tangible perspective, let's, let's talk about the numbers. When you are a seed company, and we can use it in, in the form of headcount as numbers. When you're a seed company, you're generally less than 10 people, you know, usually single digits, low single digits kind of thing. And after enough progress, after enough success, you realize, okay, I need to grow this team. I need to do more because there's so much opportunity on the other side. The customers asking me for this, that, and the other. And so then they expand their team to 10 people. Usually around 10 people, it's not perfect, to 20 people to just give it a, a bigger range. That's when the company is usually raising a Series A. And because they're around 10 to 20 people, what it means is they generally have a certain amount of customer traction as well, or else they wouldn't have expanded the team to 20 people. Because if they expanded it too quickly, you have to pay everyone, right? Everyone needs a salary. And 
is the expense worth the revenue on the other side? Still uncertain sometimes. And so you really want to do that when there's certainty. And most people naturally do that when there's more certainty. So Series A generally looks around that size in terms of people. And then in terms of revenue, they generally have some visibility to about a million dollars. And so when you do the math, million dollars, 10 people, million dollars, 20 people, you sort of get a sense of how much cash they're burning and why they have that many people as well. Because the revenue from customers is supporting a certain number of employees. Yes, generally startups are cash flow negative, but some companies are super cash flow negative. They'll have 50 people with zero revenue. <laughs> and that certainly can be the case as well because there's some categories that require that kind of initial investment in. And there's some categories where they can be very easily be profitable. And so you can sort of, the revenue per employee is generally much higher as well. Is that a helpful framework? Yeah, that's a very helpful framework. So I guess we've talked about it kind of an employee size and kind of phasing and profitability. I guess one of the other things I always see as a practitioner is you'll see the the splashy headline, Acme got their Series A funding, and then they always say the amount. Acme generated $7 million on their Series A. And other times you'll see Acme generated $13 million on their Series A, or, or you'll see it was $41 million on a Series C, or whatever these various numbers are. Like, I'm, what's kind of the scale or expectation? Like, how do I know when I read that article, what's a good amount of funding for a Series A, a Series B? A series C. Yeah. So the other part of all that craziness is that there's generally a range of ownership that an investor wants at different stages as well. You know, the earlier stage the company is, usually the investors want more ownership into the business because there's so much risk. And if the company ends up being successful, they really want to make sure that that one company can support the losses that they might sustain in other companies as well. And so it's sort of a risk-reward thing on both sides. And so as companies get later and later stage, generally they give less and less ownership to the new investors. And the reason why that's really important is because what all these numbers mean is it's actually a signal in terms of the valuation of the company. So for instance, let's say a Series A, and I'm making up numbers, it's close but not exact. A Series A is usually $15 million revenue and they usually give up 25% ownership, that kind of thing. Then you can sort of do the math in terms of what the company is worth and then what the after this transaction. And so when you do the multiples in terms of what the company is worth versus the revenue that they probably have, it gives you a sense of what valuations investors are comfortable signing up to. And so what's going on in the background is certain companies, people are more comfortable with higher valuations and then in certain companies, they're less, even though they're the same series, right? So this isn't perfect, but generally a Series A company that raises, let's say, $25 million versus a Series A that raises $5 million, usually that $25 million company is worth a lot more than the $5 million company. It's not exactly five times more, but it is multiple times more uh, valuation-wise. And that's the signal in terms of the investors believing or having all this data and deciding that this company is worth more than the other. So what's a good amount for a Series A? The range is around 10 to 25 normally. There are some that go way, way above that, and some that go that go below, but I think the standard one's around 10 to 25. And I'd say that average is probably somewhere around in the high teens nowadays. And the Series B, it's when it gets into the 20s to 40s, and then Series C is 50 and above in terms of dollar amounts. These, of course, are all estimates and general 
but hopefully that gives a sense in terms of the amounts, but then more importantly, it gives a sense of what the valuation of that company is because of it. Gotcha. So it, it seems to me, again, just from watching the news over the years and seeing, you know, Acme got this and Acme got that, it seems to me that most companies tend to do a series A, B, C, and at some point after C is the exit. But occasionally you'll hear about somebody got a series F or, you know, I don't know if H is even possible, but <laughs> you know, you'll hear about people getting these further rounds of VC investment that are much higher letters in the alphabet than A, B, C. Is there some warning flag there? Like, is that a sign of something wrong? How many rounds is too many rounds? There's definitely a signal in the number of rounds when you look at a company. But the difficult thing is, is that sometimes it's a good thing and sometimes it's a bad thing. It's pretty binary. But what I would say is that majority of the time it's a good thing when companies are raising later and later rounds and bigger and more further and further down the alphabet. It means that there's a investor that thinks there's a lot of value in the business despite lots of other fundraising and everyone's basically getting in line before the company has a big exit. So whether it's an M&A exit or whether it's an IPO generally. There are certain scenarios in which a company is do, has raised a ton of money and did not get the results that they wanted. In those cases, in order to attract additional capital from a new investor, they need to reset everything. They need to reset the economics of who gets how much, who owns how much, all that stuff. And that's when you can sort of tell those are the negative scenarios uh, when companies are raising more and more money and, and further and further down in terms of letters. There's uh, maybe five different data points someone can look at to sort of identify whether a company raising around that late is a good thing or a bad thing. The one that I would suggest for most people that anyone can pull is just by looking at headcount. If you look at head, if a headcount is going up, that's generally a good thing. If a headcount is flat or down, it's generally a signal in terms of you know where the company is especially if it's going down. If a company's flat headcount and still raising money, there's a follow-on track there, which is more along the lines of maybe they're just super efficient, right? Maybe they went from you know, 50K of revenue per employee to 200K and then 300 and 400, and they transitioned from being cash flow negative to cash flow positive, that kind of thing. So there's some additional follow-on checks to, to figure that out as well. And you can look at stuff like what are they doing in terms of who are they hiring, how are they hiring, what titles, what levels, that kind of stuff to get a sense of it. So outside looking in, you can always look at the people and you can get a sense of how companies do. I like that. Lots of variables for you guys to play with. So we talked about VCs get ownership. Like this is part of the deal. You're, you're giving money, but you're also taking some ownership. What does the VC ownership look like from the perspective of the company themselves? Let's say it's Acme again, and they're the startup and they got their Series A. And now some portion of their ownership goes over to the VC. I'm assuming that the VC is bringing things to the table as part of that ownership as well. It's not just, you know, hey, we're worried about protecting our interests, but we have lots of experience. We can guide you. We can help you. What does some of that look like? Yeah, that's definitely my favorite part of this role, of this job, is the help part. Because, you know, just to frame a little perspective, if you ha haven't been on the vendor side before, the reality is, as a vendor, you're never going to have all the resources you want, and that's common for so many different roles. But the other thing is, it's always sometimes very tough to know which direction you should be going. Like, where should you be prioritizing your time? Where should you be prioritizing your team's time? Who should you be hiring? What skills are you missing? And when you're a first-time or even a second-time entrepreneur, maybe even third-time, 
there's so much of stuff where they don't know what they don't know. I think for us, we're lucky that we get to see so many companies' life cycles that we generally have a really good idea of what is missing, what's the next step, you know, how can we guide them to be successful? And so that way we can be like Sherpas up Everest, for example. And that certainty, I think, alone is super valuable. That expertise, that advice, super, super valuable. But then like a Sherpa, how much do we help carry the load as well? And I think some people <laughs> some people promise that they're actual you know, ever Sherpas, right? Where they carry like 80%, 90% of the load up the mountain for you. That's an exaggeration. There's no one that does that. It's impossible for any external investor to be helping a company that much. But there are certainly some investors that really prioritize that and actually deliver on that promise in terms of being able to help carry some of that load up Everest. So, you know, we can go very tactical in terms of what are some of those examples in terms of what does a VC do firm do to help guide and to help the startup. And I would say that there, I'm not going to say this list in terms of priority. I'm just going to say it in terms of what pops up based off of what I've been working on recently with my companies. One that I've been really proud of, really, really, really proud of is helping them hire amazing people. When you hire someone that you've never worked with before, the interview process is fine, but it's some of a crapshoot. Interviews are crapshoot. You hire someone and you don't really know <laughs> how great they are until you start working with them. Right. And you can, back channels are super helpful. There's a lot of context there, but still it doesn't answer the complete picture. But us as VCs, you know, we have this long, 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 long term perspective. And we could be meeting these people and work, be working with them in our own startups. Maybe they're in another startup. Who knows? We can help get to know these people, get to know their strengths, get to know how where they'd be best in the ecosystem, what kind of company they want to be in, this type of stage, what types of roles they want to do, and sort of basically be able to do this matchmaking between the person and the startup. And you know, recently I was able to do that multiple times for my companies, do ma- essentially do matchmaking, timely matchmaking that was a win-win on both sides. Yeah, I can't discount the value of people in terms of making things happen at a startup. But when you have that right mix of people who are both incentives, values, everything aligns, it's just beautiful. And so I'm I'm very proud of doing some of that for my company sometimes. The other things are always going to be around sort of like board strategic type decisions like, hey, what should we do in this market? As VCs, we have a, a super macro perspective. We're all about breadth. And sometimes we get depth as well. But the easy one is breath because we're always meeting companies. We're always in the flow of information and being able to crystallize that and bring it back to our companies and show them, hey, this is where we think the world is going. This is where the world is. This is where you are in that whole ecosystem. You know, here's some data and maybe we can figure out where we should prioritize our efforts in this ecosystem together. That's Super valuable. I mean, I think that is one that no one ever questions that a VC can do for you. It's just a question of if they'll do it for you. And I think that kind of strategic work in terms of macro, you know, what's going on in the industry kind of stuff, it does require you to be very current. It does require you to be very active in terms of what's going on. So you have current information for them. And then lastly, another example, and there's a whole bunch more, but I think these are ones that just really resonated with me recently, is the actual company building part 
itself. And that can mean so many different things to so many different people, depending on their priorities. Like, what's the most important thing? How do I add the most value to this company? And some people are going to say, hey, it's revenue. Help me. You know, I'm in such early stages. And there's so many customers out there in the world, practitioners out there in the world. How do I, like, I can't just cold outreach every single one of them and ask them if they're interested in what I'm doing without annoying them. Who are actually interested in this and what I'm doing? And so helping them find those initial customers, some people really, really value that. Helping them even frame like what the heck our company does is something they really value, sort of like product marketing, product management type work. And so one way of thinking about it is each VC can also jump in and do some interim or some strategic value in each of the different roles, right? Whether it's sales, marketing, product marketing, product management, engineering, even some VCs will jump in and help with operations, finance, each of those roles. More likely than not, in the very early stages, you're not going to have someone who is an expert or who's the best or even someone (laughs) who can do some of those things. And so on the company building side, a VC can always jump in and, and help with those aspects as well. That sounds really interesting. So I guess sometimes the company is really opening the kimono. You might have a CEO reach out to you and say, hey, uh, I'm feeling like our marketing is really strong, but our sales is weak. What do you recommend? Like you'll actually have those kinds of conversations. Yeah. Those are the most rewarding ones because I've never been an entrepreneur and having the credibility and the trust, you know, to be able to be helpful for those kinds of things, I think is a sign of the learning that has been required as well as the context and reputation that has been required of building to be able to get to that position. So to summarize, a VC is not just bringing dollars to the table, but but you've got sort of market positioning and, and where do you fit in your market kind of strategy guidance to offer. You've got connections and people and, and hey, let's strengthen your team and we know some guys kind of offerings. You've even got this ability to step into, like you said, all the way up to operations even and assist. It sounds like there's a lot of value to the startup from the VC beyond the money. And it sounds like if it's a healthy relationship, that giving up of ownership, you know, which obviously for the CEO of the startup, giving up any kind of ownership at all is probably a bit frightening. But it sounds like there's some real value for them beyond just the funding. Exactly, exactly. And it's tough on both sides, right? I mean, everyone has different priorities and we can't blame them for those priorities. And so I think as VCs, that's a part of it. A part of it is knowing your strengths. And knowing what what you're doing that's valuable to the ecosystem resonates, and then finding companies that you know naturally like you for you, as well. You know, there's there's a reason why some high flying startups will meet 100 VCs and get 99 rejections in one you know one term sheet, because some of those VCs don't understand the company at all. <laughs> but you know, maybe that one VC that did give them a term sheet really understood their strengths, really understood how to be helpful with this company. And they also really had that data, that experience to be able to see something special in that company as well. At the end of the day, everyone's still a person. We're still a product of our experiences. And so we're not just machines. <laughs> right. It was like, give me data. I spit out an answer, right? I right. mean, it, there, right. There's, there's so much more to that. Yeah, and I guess my last question on that topic, and I'm going to invert the whole question now, is I remember I was listening to another podcast a while back, and they had the CEO on, and it was a successful startup. He was profitable. He was growing. 
And he was super proud of the fact that he never took a single dollar from any VC ever. And he was just so proud of having completely bootstrapped it and grown on his own. And I thought to myself, I I get that. What's your take on that perspective? Like, is he giving himself a much more difficult road to hoe by making that call? You sort of, you you maintain control, but you slow down acceleration. Like, what's the trade-off for going that way? So I invest in a lot of companies where they were bootstrapped before we invested for many, many, many years. I mean, I think... I'm thinking of some in the portfolio, they were bootstrapped for like a decade <laughs> before we invested. And they were very successful until we invested. And then, and of course, successful after we invested as well. <laughs> until. <laughs> uh, so a lot of tons and tons and tons of respect for people who bootstrap it. Maybe a way of like giving a sense of why, how that's amazing. And also the struggles related to bootstrapping. I can sort of paraphrase something one of my CEOs told me before we invested in them, which is where he said, hey, I feel like I've been in high school and I keep on failing. I can't graduate from high school and go to college. And I just don't want to do, I don't want to deal with this anymore. Like I've been really successful. Most people don't even get out of the, out of the crib as a bootstrap business, but I've been able to get here. What can you do, do to help me go to college? And I think it's a little bit, you know, when you think about it from that perspective, it's a little bit like a kid without a parent. There are some bootstrap companies that get all the way to adulthood and more without a parent. And that's why you really have to respect them for what they're able to accomplish. But I think we all know how valuable our parents were to us in terms of helping shape our lives and our careers. And some people just recognize, hey, I want a parent. And not only that, I want a parent that knows exactly how to help me grow. I like that. That's a good metaphor. So we're at the end of the show here. I have one question I always ask every guest, and you've already alluded to this a little bit, but what keeps you in the game? Why Why do you get up first thing Monday morning all excited about your job? What keeps you in the game? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Alan, you know me, so you, you know a bit about my principles and values and you know the actions I've been doing and everything. So it really just comes down to helping, helping others. If I can continue on that parent analogy really quickly, I, I grew up with a, for a large portion of my life without a parent, and I respect my parents for doing it. You know, I was an anchor baby; they didn't have a U.S. citizenship. They wanted me to grow up in the U.S., have a U.S. education, and so they they enabled me to to have a U.S. education, but without the benefit of a parent. And so I just recognize how crazy the world is, and how much value there is in friendships, how much value there is in information and knowledge and experience. And for me, whenever I learn that kind of stuff, I just, I naturally want to give it to others and help others with theirs as well. So venture capital gives me the opportunity to do that. Security is just a space I love so much, right? Because at the end of the day, we're, we're focused on defending others, protecting others, helping others as well as, as an industry. So that's two ways I can be helpful to others in both focusing on security and then also focusing on venture capital. I love it. Will Lynn, thanks so much for joining us here at The Ranch. And uh, thank you, listeners. Y'all be good now. 